Shaped by a secure attachment and nebulous identity as a daughter of German-Jewish immigrants from the Midwest, Anna Marta does not identify with labels. Coming of age in a house where sex was never discussed, Anna was shocked and confused when she came unexpectedly pregnant in 1966 and ultimately had an illegal abortion. This critical life event set her on the path to utilize the inherent comfort she felt in her own body as a way to educate others to become braver about sex. From the mechanics of it to how to make it more satisfying, Anna is on her life path to help the world embrace the body as a vehicle of understanding ourselves. Join us for the next episode of Bourbon with Beagle. I'll be drinking St. Cloud, Kentucky straight bourbon. What about you? I would like to welcome today my guest, Anna Marti, with us. And Anna has a great story and working with, with older individuals. And I'm, I'm just so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Mm. There Thanks are for two, having me, Gary. Oh, absolutely. There are two questions I, I ask the guests. I am a profession working with aging individuals. And so I always ask, what generation are you associated with? Well, that's kind of cultural. I would say other people might think I'm part of the boomers. I was born in 1950. Well, but. what I find is the boomers is such a large generation uh, of years in that generation that a lot of us feel like that maybe we don't fit into that generation. And I consider myself, I'm a boomer as well, but I consider myself to really be more on the Z side than the boomer side because my philosophies and my outlooks are so different from people in the older side of the boomers. So uh, do you feel that way as well? Well, you know, you'll find out more about me, but I, I kind of um, hesitate to identify with any kind of labeling, whether it's okay. generational, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's gender, um, whether it's relationship style, because when I communicate like I'm this or I'm that, depending on what your background is, you hold me there. Yeah. So we get held by labels. So I've, I've never, I've actually, I personally don't identify with that at all. Okay. Well, you know, that's, that's really um, a great, uh, and I need to be more open about that. My very first guest, uh, Jay Bloom, um, has the same philosophy as you. I remember that. listening to that. Yeah. yeah. And I went, that is really kind of cool. So the labeling of these things tend to put people in different categories that are pre perceived in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you clarifying for that. I think I'm going to change my question Okay, my be great. On, the, on this one to do yeah. that one. Uh -huh. um, as we're aging, do you have a philosophy on aging or? You know, Carrie, I don't think about it. We start aging from the minute we're born. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Um, you know, you know, I've, I've never, I, you know, I was looking at your questions. You sent some questions to me and I'm, I was perusing them and it's like, I kind of did a sound check with a friend of mine before we got on. And I, yeah. I, I asked her the questions and, you know, she said, you know, you don't have a philosophy, um, <laughs> you know, from the background that I, that I work from and that mm -hmm. I have, it's really about being in this kind of organic responsiveness with reality. And again, sure. kind of philosophy, I mean, look what's happening in the world. Right. Philosophy is often tied to belief. Right. And beliefs can be very encrusted. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of suffering in the world right now. Yeah, there is. With yeah. um, people very tenaciously holding on to their philosophy or their beliefs. So I'd rather right. be in this kind of more fresh and new conversation. And and I think you're right, and and I would agree, and and probably need to change my own. There's another type question. Of views, <laughs> views for that to change? Yes, absolutely, Anna. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I I think in working with the uh, older individuals, they tend to want to know black and white things, like what generation you're in, what all hmm. this is, and so it's going to be uh, different for me, but. One that I think much needed for me is to change that dialogue and say, not even ask the question. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it it opens it up. It opens up yeah. to a different kind of curiosity, sure, different sure. kinds of listening and questions, which is 
I think basically what I do when I work with people is I want to open up their their view. I want to open up their beliefs. And right. people come to me on a really broad continuum of objective and often are fixated on like some problem. It's like fix right. this. And they don't consider that any particular issue that I feel is a problem, it's not compartmentalized from the rest of my life. And we would like right. it to be. You know, it's like, if right. I just fix this one thing, everything's going to be okay. And it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. yeah that. Well, so we've all had personal journeys. And so how has your personal journey led to uh, your work, led to your profession? How has mm -hmm. that happened? Well, yeah, being that I've been in a body for a good 72 years, it's, it's been... <laughs> There's been a lot, but exactly. um, uh, I'm a first generation American. My parents uh, were German Jews. They came over you know, after the first world war and they were quite old when they had me, they were in their forties and just, just growing up, I, I was born in the Midwest. And so, but my family actually was like living in Germany in the, in the thirties. I mean, that's how yeah. it felt. So I really felt like a stranger in a strange land in right. Indianapolis. I had a brother who was 18 years older, so I didn't have a, a sibling to kind of mm, usher me through high school. So yeah, it was, it was, it, it shaped me. Um, and I think it shaped me. I haven't really thought about this because I felt so not fitting. Mm -hmm. So I think what I learned how to do is not really care very much what other people thought. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've talked to other therapists or coaches or counselors, but one of the big platforms that's popular right now is um, attachment styles. I don't know if you've heard about that I at all. Not, yeah. Different conversation, different. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very big in the counseling realm. And, and it, it maintains that when we're small, you know, we're kind of pulled between these two longings. We, you know, we need safety and comfort and security in order to survive as a little right. baby. But we also want agency and autonomy. Right. And so like, you know, kind of the first time that your mother like kind of pushes like this little bowl of something that you don't want and you push it away. Uh -huh. you know, no. And depending on like, you know, some people get hit, some people. So we kind of we learn early on if I exert myself different than what those people taking care of me, mm -hmm. bad things happen. Right. And so there's. You know, some people withdraw, some people, you know, compromise themselves. All that to say, I had, I really lucked out with the parent card. I had really good, I had really good loving parents. And so what that, that's called a secure attachment. Right. So, yeah, so that shaped me. The other piece in relationship to my work is my parents never imagine that they would need to tell their daughter about sex. Right. Remember we got these old German people because she would find out when she got married. Right. right? Yeah. So this is kind of a generational thing. It happened to be, you know, the sixties mm -hmm. in Indianapolis, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, absolutely. And it was not Germany <laughs> in the thirties, <laughs> you know, consequently I got pregnant in 1966 and I had no idea how that happened. Yeah. And that still happens today. Exactly. So, so that was, um, you know, that was when the veil kind of splits, you know, when you realize my parents don't have all the answers and they don't know how to take. Right. So, so again, there was a sense if I'm going to, I'm going to begin to take responsibility for this part of my expression. Right. Well, I, I have a the similar background, but mine is more on, based on the conservative religion background, mm, mm -hmm. where they don't talk about sex at all, right? And you know, and and everything is taboo with regard to that. So, growing up in that environment, I'm very similar with that. I I had no clue, and then I did not have a older sibling or so anybody else to kind mm. of lead me through it. But uh, you know, people tend to think that these backgrounds and these discussions would happen more today and you've got the internet, but it doesn't. It all. happens in a different way. Most kids now learn about some kind of sexuality from their phones mm -hmm. by the time they're like 10. Yeah. yeah. And it really, um, anybody that's listening to this, grandma's parents, you want to make sure that those little people have correct 
information. Right. You're not going to stop, you know, yeah, pornography, which I don't have a problem with from a social and political point of view, but pornography gives us this totally unrealistic expectations of the erotic experience. Absolutely. They're going to see it. So you want to help guide them to what satisfying sex looks like. And mm-hmm. they're not getting that from anywhere. Yeah. And, and we're living in such a conservative climate right now that, you know, yeah, exactly. the schools don't have their hands tied as far as being able to. Well, the part that the parents won't do. (laughs) Exactly. And I think that that's uh, unfortunate and really not serving the younger population by allowing them to do that. You know, even back in the Texas, Oklahoma area where I grew up in, there are still individuals there that have that conservative view of not talking about sex. And this is. This is today, so it's oh, kind of there's they're in Portland too, Gary. Yeah, I'm sure they are <laughs> they're in Portland to do <laughs> that one. Yeah, they're everywhere. So, so, things shape our lives, and we move forward with them. But you have probably something I wish I had known about back in my time. <laughs> it would have certainly helped me out. Um, but you are a intimacy coach, educator, and a mentor, and so. Talk to me a little bit about what that entails and what that means. I'm a, I'm a counselor of sorts. I'm mm-hmm. not licensed. I I came I came to this, you know, like what shaped me. Okay, I got pregnant in 1966. I had an illegal abortion in mm-hmm. 1966. I escaped the kind of religious guilt that you got to carry with you. Uh, there's actually Talmudic text that says you will have to answer to God to all the things that came before you that you did not take pleasure in. Right. So I have that in my lineage. But I've always been comfortable being in a body. Like, I, right. you know, and that's not everybody. I mean, I've danced and I've taught fitness. And, you know, even though I was unskilled for so many, so much of my life, I thought the sexuality and eroticism, like it was like fun. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I've been married three times. I make a great wife, by the way. <laughs> Ask any of them. <laughs> I love everyone I've ever been with. Um, Congratulations. My, uh, and this is, you know, I've talked about this in interviews before, but my third former husband had a lot of sexual trauma through the Catholic Church, through other mm-hmm. kinds of trauma. And so we were deeply connected, but um, as far as our erotic lives, we were on very opposite sides. So initially I began to explore this material because I wanted to bring some kind of healing and resonance into my marriage. So for many years, that's what I did. And and he was willing to go to therapists and have me take him to workshops. And I became aware in some of the workshops I did come under the umbrella of Neo-Tantra. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Yes. So Neo-Tantra is an appropriation of uh, some practices from Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, uh, human needs psychology oriented toward more consciousness in erotic expression, yeah. which is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I love that approach. And and I come from a, when I, I'm GLBTQ community. And so when I came out in back in the early eighties or mid eighties, I left all the guilt of the Southern Baptist church behind, which was ah. really good for me. <laughs> all of it. I did it, but I was going, oh my gosh, no, this, this just doesn't match up with who I am today. But we also had a little revolution Mm -hmm. pre-AIDS in that community as well about how we need to change our views with regard to to sex and partners and relationships. Mm -hmm. So that is just amazing that you were able to reach that very similar uh, philosophy as well. You know, so, and in some ways, I don't know, you know, I was going to say in some ways it might have been easier, a little bit easier for me kind of appearing on the heteronormative scale. And I want to say congratulations to you because that's been a long, hard road yes. and you still have, you still have privilege, you know, because yeah. you're a white guy. Exactly. You're exactly. a heteronormative passing guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I talked to some of my um, friends of color, especially. And so if we're in cars together, it's amazing to me the difference sometimes of how I, you get viewed if you were <sighs> to do that one. And, and I have cousins that are that, uh, individuals of color as well. And so 
uh, when we're with them, their whole perspective is a little different uh, in how they look at things and what they, they have to be aware of. But you're absolutely correct about having the white male persona yeah. helps. Yeah, I was, I was listening today, for those of you that see this sometime in the future, um, the um, the verdict that came out that wasn't the death penalty right. for the shooter. And they were interviewing a, a professor at the at Brooklyn Law School, and she was saying how people still, when they're just faced with different kinds of facial structures, mm-hmm. you know, they will vote for death penalty just based on that same exact crimes. Mm-hmm. So that there's a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're so off topic now. Conclusion. Absolutely. (laughs) But not really. (laughs) True, true, true. (laughs) So, this idea that you sprang forth about how you needed to help your ex heal through the sexual sexual trauma is that what that was with them? Yeah, what I found. Yeah, what I found is, um, you know, I don't believe we can heal anybody. People do the work themselves. I just wanted to. I wanted to have a, a marriage that was more a partnership that was, you know, mm-hmm. less traumatized. Yeah. And so, so that opened a door for me and I became fascinated with um, how we express and connect in that way. You know, I think of philosophy back to something I said just the other day and it just kind of came out of my mouth spontaneously is I really love the world. Yeah, I love the world. And so loving the world in a, intimate in a physical way. I just find it endlessly fascinating. And yeah. so I, I don't have a conventional academic background, but I've done a lot of training through different professional organizations that sure. are more clinical. And then also, you know, I, like I said, I started in the, in the neo-tantra world and that led me to, uh, I have a traditional tantric teacher, which is just the spiritual technology that we mm-hmm. may or may not have time to talk about. So what so, is that actually? Uh, traditional tantra? No, the the spiritual aspect of it. Yeah, so so that's traditional tantra. It's a spiritual technology okay. that involves meditation, uh, specifically working with a teacher. That commitment to study myself, but also to use my body as mm-hmm. a vehicle for knowing who I am, because the body sure. has great wisdom and any kind of meditation practice, and that's all it is is practice. You know, if mm-hmm. you sit quietly with yourself over years, what becomes apparent is all the noise, all the narratives of, Mm -hmm. you know, who you think you are, who I think I am. And you begin to have less attachment to that. So as we started our call, you know, so I can be more in this kind of organic responsiveness with you, you know, so, you know, hopefully I can let go of like, Oh, here's this white guy I've never seen before. You know? <laughs> Who is he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and how do I define you just by that? So exactly. I, I want to feel you. I want to feel you. I want to, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I I have learned very on that I don't really judge or define folks when I meet them or see them. So that's something I've I've learned over the the, the years to to do that because I work with a lot of different folks and. I found a long time ago, you just can't do that because you don't know who they are or what they're coming from and mm-hmm. those type of things and, yeah. and doing it. So it's wonderful to be surprised, isn't it? It, it is. It's <laughs> wonderful to be surprised and it's yeah. wonderful to, to just be an observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm going, well, that's kind of, I work some with families with conflicts, um, uh, mm. around the financial area, right. you know, but right. you know, it's just amazing to me. I'm just sitting there going, Hmm. I'm glad I don't have a side here because this is way too interesting to <laughs> to see how they're interacting about this 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 issue. Mm-hmm. But, you know to do that. So the intimacy coach, you do the tantra one. What else is is involved in that intimacy coach portion? Well, most people practice? come to me, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like on a Google search. Well, I'm also on Psychology Today, so oh, yeah, most people come kind of initially. Maybe they have a relational issue or a sexual issue. And they're interested in something that's a little broader than conventional right. therapy. And, and like I said, you know, the body has great wisdom. What we know from psychoanalysts is, you know, you can talk about something until 
you've got a foot in the grave and you're going to be giving somebody a lot of money and not to diminish anybody that's a psychoanalyst. But, um, you know, I feel like if, if someone isn't closer to feeling more relaxed with how they're showing up in the world, mm-hmm. hmm, like in a year, one of us is doing something wrong. Exactly. <laughs> and I want to refer him to some, I know, I know I'm not the, the right fit for everybody. Right. So. so when I, I come to see you, do you help me define what my issues might be if I just don't know what they are or if the issue that I'm having isn't truly the issue? Do you mm. kind of work with those individuals to define that? Well, yeah, I, the short answer is, you know, anybody that comes to see me, they'll like say it's you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know you. I don't know what you should do with your life, but I have great confidence in your capacity to access your own wisdom. Okay. And that's probably my primary job to create a climate, to ask questions, to help you get quiet enough so that you can listen. Right. Now we can listen. Yeah, it's so interesting because I have you ever heard of Landmark Forum? It was big. I have. Yeah. Yeah. So a friend of mine was doing it, and I was on this. I'm curious. I'm curious about everything, Gary. Yeah. And and I was on one of their calls, which is like a lot of marketing, but they ask you to define something that's an obstacle. And what I realized for me is, I say I want clarity, but if I have clarity there is a responsibility to take some action. And if I can just say that I don't know, I'm not clear, then I can avoid that. So I think a lot of people are in that. If I, if I really identify what that obstacle it is, and, and then there comes like, okay, do I want to do anything about it? Yeah. You've probably had that experience when you feel like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great philosophy. And, and one really, when I, I haven't thought about that. So thank you for enlightening me on that one, that if we identify it, we have to take action. Well, we don't have to, but, to, but, but <laughs> if you want to, if you want to improve yourself and do what you need to do for you, for your own personal well-being, then probably you do need to take some action on that. Well, and the other piece of that, and, and I'm, I'm in a few professional groups and I, I have often heard my colleagues get kind of frustrated about they've been working with somebody and, you know, they don't do the homework or they don't seem to have, you know, moved in the direction that they say they want to do. And the other Mm -hmm. part of that, Gary, is some people just to be able to be in a safe place Mm -hmm. where they can express themselves, that's worth the price of admission. That is. And there's great comfort in that. And, you know, I I work, I have a number of, of clients, that are bisexual, mm-hmm. you know, and they're in heteronormative relationships that they don't believe they can come out in. Mm-hmm. But just being able to be in a room to kind of talk freely about it. Sure. Um, it's a space where that tension of hiding mm-hmm. can be released. Yeah. Well, I think one of the interesting things that, that I experience is, is that I tend to accept people where they are. Mm. So I don't try to project things. That's the reason why I've been pretty successful in what I'm doing is because I just don't project. Well, this needs to happen. That needs to happen. Mm. It'll happen at that person's own time and uh, doing that. And sometimes it's not going to happen at all. Uh, So that's really, really a great philosophy. You've got great enlightened views and and certainly you've helped me twice or three times today. (laughs) So how do you, educate and what do you educate? Ah, and I love that question. Like, I think we both are examples of being absent on that day of school where they handed out the textbook for the successful erotic life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were all absent on that day of school. Yeah. And it's a combination of kind of basic information mm-hmm. of, of understanding, you know, certainly if we're talking sexually about human sexuality, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, information and but more than that because information is really we're, mm-hmm. we're overloaded with information sure. um and you can't see i'm in my office with a screen but i have like lots of books on sex and relationships i have more upstairs there is an endless number of websites and essays and workshops in maui and if the information is so readily available 
you know, how come we're struggling? What I've found, Gary, is we have a diminished capacity for discomfort. Right. We have a diminished capacity to be able to speak, listen, and experience what is awkward, mm-hmm. uncomfortable, sometimes super scary, while cultivating a felt sense of open-hearted connection. Wow. Okay. So I'll give you a little example. So let, imagine, really imagine <laughs> that we were going out right? uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, we've gone out for a while and when we're getting to know each other, kind of what we're doing right now, now this is who I am. This is what I like. You know, you show me who you are. We don't have a lot of investment right. in this relationship, but if that investment continues to grow, I become um, hypersensitive. If I, mm-hmm. you know, bring up this subject, I notice you get uncomfortable if I initiate a particular kind of touch you withdraw and so I I tell myself well I love you Gary I don't want you to be uncomfortable so I don't initiate those kinds of behaviors or I avoid avoid those subjects and I tell myself it's because of you but it's not you it's me (laughs) if I really showed you who I was and what I wanted and how I felt you won't love me and that is the most significant factor that we cannot implement all this material that is so readily available yeah. uh, because we, you know, and, and I come at it physically. So it's not cognitively. Right. So do you have a partner right now? I do. Okay. I do. How long have you been together? 40 years. 40 years. Yes. Okay. So I bet, and I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, but I want you to think of something that you'd really like to talk to your partner about. You've been thinking about it for a long time. Just think about okay. it. Got it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you think about having this conversation with your partner, what do you notice in your body? Well, I notice that probably it will be uncomfortable to have that what? discussion with them. Where? Where? But I want you to notice it in real time right now. Oh, okay. Do you feel it? A little hesitant, I think. Hesitant is a brain word. I want you yes. to come in. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Is um, your, how's your breathing? How's your throat uh, feel? It, it's tightening a little. Okay. Little, <laughs> my stomach is kind of yeah. going okay. a little... little butterflies and that. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's what we'll work with. So if you went to your partner and said, boy, I feel, I feel really hesitant to talk to you about this. Mm-hmm. He might say, Gary, we've been together 40 years. You know, you don't have to be hesitant about anything might say that. And so now we got to talk about that, not the thing that you want to talk about. Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, but he, he cannot refute you know, if you came and said, boy, Mm, I notice my stomach's a little tight. Do you have some time to talk right now? There's kind of an immediate felt sense of empathy. Right. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so I, I want to help people build that capacity, just like if you went to the gym and you'd be working to for endurance or strength. I want people to feel more courageous around having those uncomfortable conversations. And I, and I do role play with them, just kind of like we just did right now, except absolutely, we just started it. Yeah. Well, congratulations on being able to do that and uh, <laughs> help me through my little, little issue here. Appreciate it. <laughs> we got to spend more time together before you. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And so you're also a mentor and tell me a little bit about your role as a mentor and how that unfolds when you work with individuals? You know, I, um, I haven't done as much of that lately. I actually just got a call from a young woman uh, a couple of days ago. I don't go after that. Some people, you know, hear about what I do and who I am. And so, you know, I, in some ways I do a similar thing that I do with my clients is I want to c- connect them with resources. Sure. So, I've mentored a lot of people that have kind of different strengths. I I remember one woman who was very clear she just wanted to work with women. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so I connect her with resources in, in doing that. I mentored some person that was very involved in the in the kink community yeah. and BDSM. I I worked with yeah, so so I wanna oh, and another another deep dear colleague of mine. She started working personally, but but her love is creating communities. Right. And she uh, created a, a, a platform called Sex Positive World. Wow. And Sex Positive Portland. So, you know, that had meetup groups and, you know, because for so many people, you you have shame, you know, yeah. to talk about 
these, this very hmm, integral part of our life that's so connected to our sense of self. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, the mentor role is professional mentoring, correct? Right, right. Okay. I had kind of, uh, I'm glad you clarified that because I was going, how are you mentoring your your uh, your clients? And so this makes sense. Yeah. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed is we work a lot with developmentally disabled individuals. Mm. We work with uh, people with traumatic brain injuries, but mm. the development disabled community uh, really does parents and people don't talk about sex with those mm. individuals at all. It's starting and to change. It's it starting is. to change. But, and, and there's, and I'm, I'm sure you've noticed it. There's a real sense of protection right. and overprotection and people with developmental disabilities often are, um, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of there? Yeah. It's an E word exploited. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, so so you know that kind of care and protection seems relevant. Um, and interesting that you should say that because the same thing happens with older adults. You're absolutely it's like, correct. You know, for many older adults, we don't stop being sexual, but yeah, you know, so often in in you know assisted living stage living facilities, the caregivers are younger. Mm-hmm. They they have their own shame about like. You know, thinking that, you know, people that are grandparents age are having sex or want to have sex. So that's right. that's an ongoing issue as far as educating care facilities. And, sure. and, you know, I have I have actually have a lot of books on on sex and aging, but um, oftentimes it's the children, you know, so mm-hmm. maybe some people meet in a mm-hmm. care facility and. You know, one of their parents is the parent that's in there is widowed and they don't want anybody else. Yeah. So we're a mess. We're so messy, (laughs) Gary. We're just so messy. Human beings are messy. You're absolutely correct. (laughs) Uh, The development disabled one, we had, um, I just attended a a conference recently and we were talking about how do you teach masturbation Mm -hmm. to to younger development disabled individuals? And there is no films that you can be shown in the U.S. We have to order Canadian films. Really? Yes. Yeah, I, I have. Huh, I have a number of colleagues that that teach masturbation. Yeah. And I don't know if they've worked with that audience. And are you familiar with um, the Body Electric School? I, I am absolutely. Of course you are. You better be. <laughs> <laughs> for for but, your for your for your listeners, it's, it's uh, yeah, exactly. And I think that. Teaching those individuals would be extremely beneficial. Uh, one example was given was the young man was aggressive and all this other stuff. And they thought, why, why all of a sudden? And then they went in and, and showed the video and taught them how to masturbate. And it's amazing how all those aggressive behaviors went away mm-hmm. once they felt like that they were able to express their sexuality. But you're absolutely correct in that older individuals, as well as in the development disabled community, people tend to have family members, very negative types of responses and emotions when tied when the older individual maybe wants another relationship yeah. Yeah. with doing that. Mm-hmm. And we've struggled with that a lot because we serve as guardian of the person and, mm-hmm. and financial mm-hmm. on those. And so we have to, to say in the protocol, but again, like you said, if they're, if they're older, people just think you don't have sex. Uh-huh. So, or they know. just don't want to think about, it. you know, they just want to consider that you right. might be sexual, even when you were younger. If, if exactly. it's a relative, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it's an interesting dynamics and something we've certainly got to mm. uh, overcome. I don't know when, but we'll, we'll <sighs> education such as yourself will certainly benefit that. Is do you talk um, when you educate and talk about these things? Do you talk about I, I was mentioning to a, a friend of mine that I was going to have you as a guest, and they said, "How does STDs work in the older community? Do you talk about that, or because so we call them STIs now? STIs, sexually transmitted infections. Infections. Okay. Yeah, STIs. Gosh, Anna, I am learning so much from you today on these things. <laughs> Thank you. you so, know, do you talk about that at all with when you educate groups? Yeah, I mean, kind of depending if if I'm. You know, often working with an adult, older adult, in fact, um, a colleague and I are doing a, 
doing an in-person event next week at the Lake Oswego Community mm-hmm. Center for Older yeah. Adults on dating. dating. And for those of us in our particular generation, uh, we didn't really, I mean, I think that the gay population had more of those conversations, right? but we didn't have those conversations so much. And so older adults are not comfortable having those conversations. They right. weren't comfortable 45 years ago and they're not comfortable today. Right. And, and actually STIs have been increasing uh, among older adults because they yeah. don't have those conversations. But I was at a, a professional training and they did a great demonstration about this. And so, you know, let's say we were sitting next to each other and uh, they told you to hold my hand. What would you do? Hold your hand. You'd hold my hand. Yes. Do you know I washed my hands? I grew up on a ranch. Why didn't I, you ask me if I washed my hands? Probably because, like I said, I grew up on a ranch. Yeah. And so there's nothing, you know, that I haven't had been exposed to. Is right. The reason on that. Yeah. But you're right. Why, did, why don't you ask those questions? You know, because, you know, I mean, what are some of the answers? Well, I trusted you. Yeah. Or I just assumed, you know, that your hands were clean. Or I, that would feel awkward. Those are all the same reasons that we don't ask about STIs. Yeah. I trusted you. You would, you would. Think I was rude if I asked. Yeah. Well, great and great um, example of why we don't do that. And truly, you know, even the younger generations, I, I when I talk to them about sexual experiences and are you taking cautions or precautions against all this stuff, they're almost the same as the older adults. Yeah. They don't want to ask about it, so you have uh, to really put it into their their psyche that this is important. Yeah. God, I'm trying to think of the acronym right now. A, a, a colleague of mine, she's a she's a really brilliant OBGYN out of Salem, and she she has a TEDx talk that she did. Oh yeah. And and it's an acronym, and I can't believe I can't think of it right now. I know one way to spell it is rats. R A T S S. God, what is it? I'll find it. I'll find it before we before we okay. finish. But um. She initially did it for her 16-year-old son, mm-hmm. but it, it's an acronym. And so if, you know, if we're going to start going out, you know, well, I want to find out what your relationship status is. That's the R, you mm-hmm. know, well, you're in a committed relationship. Well, I'm looking for a com- committed relationship. If we don't have that, co- you know, mm-hmm. we didn't have to do anything else, but oftentimes we don't have that conver- conversation. Uh, the A is for what are the sexual behaviors that you avoid that you really don't want to do? Right. The things that you don't want to do are the things I really like doing. I don't want to get my clothes off with you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, let's see, there's one for the STI screen mm-hmm. and your safe sex practices. And isn't that so funny? Let's see. I should have prepared better. But um, <laughs> Listen, I can it. prepare all I want to. Sometimes it's just, it's gone. It's, it's gone. gone you it's know. gone. Yeah. yeah so you know, there's there's the things that you want to avoid and the things that you really like. And so right. being able to talk about this, but also um, your STI status and also your safe sex practices. Right. And ideally, you want to learn how to have those comfortably before you take your clothes off with someone. Exactly. And I, I really appreciate that uh, you're able to to bring that awareness to individuals. That's absolutely great. One of the things is that how would I nurture and I'm a vibrant erotic connection? How do I nurture that as myself? Hmm. Oh, start paying attention to what you're enjoying. Okay. You know, how do you eat a meal? Are you, you know, can you pause for a minute and, you know, appreciate the color and the smells and the taste, you know, food is like so sensual. Yeah, you know, people love going out to eat with me. <laughs> I really, I really enjoy eating. Uh, you know, but you know, I, I've, I hope I don't offend anyone here. But you know, if you go out with someone and there's like they don't eat any, you know, they have all these restrictions and they're mm, they have a problem with food. I don't know if I want to get naked with them. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes exactly. there, sometimes there's a connection. Um, yeah. So and being in nature, spending time in nature is how to cultivate that erotic relation. Um, Does meditation help with that as well? It can. Okay. Um, you know, there's all kinds of meditations and there are all kinds of meditation practices that 
do have kind of a body negative aspect. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. your question was, how do I cultivate more of a, an erotic connection with myself? So meditations that involve a lot of traditional tantric meditations mm-hmm. involve a lot of stuff. There's incense and there's flowers. And so, you know, they are things that, you know, activate the senses. Sure. Being in nature. When you get dressed in the morning, what do you choose? Do you choose something that feels good against your skin? Or do you even notice? Do you like to dance? Dancing is a great way. Yeah. Wow. Just to get started. Yeah. Just the yeah. Few well, things. I was going to say, you know, that's that again, oh, I've been enlightened on that. And I won't say that. I hate saying that again and again, but <laughs> I have been. Um, you know, it is not only, uh, it's you expanded the definition of what I would have, what I would have thought that would have been erotic. Mm, mm. You expanded it to include the senses that you have and enjoying the moment where you're at. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, is a key to, to, to that, uh, being able to do that. So thank you for, for expanding that definition, helping me out with that. And also as a penis owner. Yes. <laughs> From Texas. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, we're still doing this to, to penis owners, which is that doesn't hurt. Be a big boy. You are discouraged from sensing yourself. You are exactly. rewarded for what you express from here. Uh, and even in athletics, you know, yeah. the body is seen as luggage, luggage to get you. You know, and so when I, I work with men, regardless of their orientation, oftentimes they've internalized this, this very limited concept this little view of their sexuality which it like has to do with this like one piece of their body that doesn't connect to all the other parts right and to to have a really vibrant erotic connection is opening that up that part of your body your penis is not separated from the rest of you and the, right. those pleasurable sensations can stream through your whole body and that's something that you can share with a partner um, yeah. so it becomes very rich it does become very rich and uh Absolutely. I noticed that, and this just intrigued me beyond belief, that you do a death cafe? Well, um, that... the what What is that? Okay, so death cafes were started by um, a man and his mother in London mm-hmm. to open the conversation on death and dying. Okay. And you know, at one point, Portland, not surprising, had the most... Um, significant number of active death cafes in the world. Uh, when the pandemic hit and in Portland, they tried to um, pivot to an online platform. The one, the the person in Portland that was facilitating that was unable to continue it. So I was, I know you had that question and I was going to see what was happening in Portland, but what they look like is um, a library, a restaurant, a bar, a coffee shop will donate their space for several mm-hmm. hours. And people come just because they want to talk, they want to have a place to talk about death and dying. And as a facilitator, um, you have one rule. You want to keep a conversation going. You want to make sure nobody's trying to impose their beliefs on anybody else or they're not trying to sell anything. Right. Uh, but, you know, there are people that are grieving. There are people that might have a, a prognosis. There are people that um, have I've lost someone. There are people that just want to talk about, just want to talk about death. And it's interesting because when I first came to Death Cafe and I felt like, this is home. I mean, I even did like two parts of a, of a death doula training, like death midwife. And I realized the connection, there's a connection between sex and death. Yeah. And they're both portals of transformation. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is, is, yeah, that's that's great that you are able to make that a distinction for us. Transformation, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah, death and dying has been something I've been around since my childhood. Mm. Uh, and I deal a lot with um, surviving children where one has passed away yeah. dramatically. Because mm-hmm. uh, that happened in my instance. My brother was nine. I was five. I was in the back of the truck. My dad accidentally ran over him. Oh, God. That's and the worst. And then, as a result, died of that. So, very, very, uh, from that moment on. Huge trauma. Uh, I've been going through that and, and working through that through therapy for years. But I find that 
those people are the ones that they have a surviving child guilt, mm-hmm. which is uh, you, the other child has become this angel of nothing. And here you are. And if you mess up, then you aren't living up to the expectations of mm, the other child. Yeah, yeah. So I've worked a lot with that community. And I wish I had known about these debt cafes because I think it would have been very therapeutic and very mm. good to talk about how those things happen, how they affect us, how grief is different for one individual versus another. So yeah, absolutely. Well, the last question I have is, what do you think is going to happen to future generations with regard to sex education and the education piece of that? Do you you have any sense of where it's going to go? How would I know? I know. Uh, It was one of the questions I read to my friend. It's like, well, yeah, but I, I think for me, it's maybe a hope that the future will have more individuals willing to look at life a little differently. Uh, and experience it. Mm. Well, you're from Texas, Gary. Yes. So, you know, and we're living in Portland, or I'm living in Portland, you're close by. Yeah. But um, we're in a, we're in a bubble. Yeah, we are. We're in a bubble. And, you know, with the overturn of Roe versus Wade and, you know, all the different news items that I've been watching that, you know, these um, apps that women track their menstrual cycle on, they can be used against them and and yeah. find out if they've tried to have an abortion in a state that's disallowed it. So um, on one hand, and this has been the case for a number of years, we have less, although it's changing. Yeah. You know, Netflix, Netflix has some really wonderful kind of sex education yeah. uh, material. Although I just heard that was it the Discovery Channel bought HBO and HBO initially had you know, the, some of the edgier shows, you know, um, mm-hmm. The Sopranos and, you know, without the, um, the kinds of, you know, editing and uh, stringent regulations that network television did. But the plan of, that Discovery has for HBO now is they're going to make it more family friendly and, and reality based shows. So, yeah, I, 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 you know, actually from a tantric orientation, you think about things in, in a larger worldview. Mm-hmm. Right now, you know, not just in the United States, but all over, you know, Hungary and South America, and there's, there's so many fascist governments kind of right. coming into power. And that's the, that's the natural, mm, natural expression of reality. Things yeah. expand and contract and expand and contract. Right. How about you? How do you feel? Well, I think the future is going to be, like I said, hopeful in that one. Um, I'm a little I agree we're in a bubble here. Uh, And I'm a little concerned about us becoming less tolerant and less loving Mm. than we have been in the past. And I think that probably the, uh, you know, it's it's just a a very few percentage points to change political climate in most of these states. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, and I'm hopeful that that, the Roe versus Wade wakes people up that decision, the the marriage equality thing that's probably going to be coming through the Supreme Court has, has that uh, to do that. Just the loss of a lot of individual freedoms that we've and law that has been out there and, and tested in, like Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And it concerns me that those three nominees for the Supreme Court justices uh, were were not truthful. Because that's what their whole profession is based on, is the truth yeah. and making those decisions. So I'm yeah. disappointed in that that realm. I think we've lost some ethics in this country. So. It's, it's, it's wild, you know, you know as, as a first-generation America, and, um, and my father particularly came over after the First World War. Yeah. And so I was brought up with, you know, I mean, you know, my parents were like of the you know, kind of the the beaver, leave it to beaver 50s, where, you know, there was this kind of sense of hope and peace and people getting along. Although I think what was really happening is the Band-Aid's been pulled off. Right. You know, the marginalized, the disenfranchised have always been with us. And now people don't want to see them in a next door, which is kind of a black hole. You know, people are so mean. They are. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see them. Get rid of the camps. Yeah. Well, and they've got, I think part of the problem here is we've lost our filters. 
people that used to be, they wouldn't be saying things now are just saying it because the environment is more accepting of it. And I think that is really part of, uh, of, of going backwards at the declining mm-hmm. point of views uh, to do that. But yeah. 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 And, yeah. you know, again, so many factors involved. I, I have grandchildren and, you know, when you and I went to school, I don't know how it was in Texas, but we had art and music. Yes. Yeah. That's gone. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, gone. you know, being exposed to classical music, I, I go to the symphony, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you yeah. know, my granddaughter who is like super smart, she doesn't, she hardly ever watches movies. So that, you know, that kind of appreciation of the, the stream of history that, yeah. that connects us, that's certainly diminishing to some degree. It's diminishing a lot, actually, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. You know, things we're debating in books, we're debating all of these issues <laughs> about, you know, whether they're appropriate or not. So I, I, I'm hopeful that the next generation and our, my generation will become more of an advocate mm-hmm. and get out there and march again like they did in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. so that we can get some, some ch- definite change coming in. Mm-hmm. Well, Anna, thank you so much for being my guest. I have truly enjoyed this and thank you so much for uh, your perspective, which is just uh, just has changed my viewpoints on several things. Thank you so much. Well, it's... it's, it's uh, it's been just super lovely to talk with you. And yeah. especially, you know, sometimes when I do an interview like this, like, you know, you know, I'll have like a half an hour conversation yeah. with someone so that, you know, we kind of know each other and like, this is the first time we've met. So yeah. it was really fun to yes. hang out with you. I hope we get to hang out again. I, oh, I hope so too. I, I would love, love that. that. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast, and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.